Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have another episode, another founder, another exciting founder with an exciting journey. You know, his story is remarkable. You know, we're going to be talking about going from, you know, the finance, you know, world to then family office, VC, turning into entrepreneur, raising, you know, a bunch of money. I think that around 140 million that they've raised. And then also fundraising, you know, what has happened in this environment, acquisitions, the way that they go about inorganic growth and really centralizing everything that they do. And we have quite a good episode in front of us. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Luca Cartecchini. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so happy to be here. So born in Italy. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Correct. No, yeah, life in Italy is great, uh, to be honest, especially to grow up there. And then I moved to the UK for university. Um, so I did this uh, uh, master in uh, uh, management between London and Paris, and I always worked in the UK. So I never actually worked in Italy, despite being Italian. I started my career um, at Jefferies, which is an investment bank uh, with operation in Europe as well, where I was covering um, the e-commerce space. So I was responsible for names such as Buhu, Ocado, ASOS, Zalando, mostly like, you know, European internet companies listed in the stock exchange with market cap between one and $15 billion. And then after uh, four years there, um, I decided that I wanted to move on the other side. So from providing recommendation to actually execute the recommendation. So like you said, I moved to this family office based in London called Pretios and Ventures. I was convinced pretty much by the quality of the people behind the project. The main founder was Gerald Lopez, that was the founder of Mangrove Capital Partners 30 years ago. So one of the first European venture capital funds, um, first investor into Skype and Wix, and um, stayed there for two years, closed a bunch of transactions in the range of $1 and $10 million seed and Series A, and then I decided to start Shop Circle three years ago. That's amazing. So uh, that's the the thirty thousand foot view. Now I want to ask you this, you know, because being Italian, you know, I'm I'm Spanish, and uh, obviously, you know, it's a similar way of uh, looking at life and and seeing things. You know, very traditional too. You know, the the type of cultures. So what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. So obviously, we we don't have the pasta, unfortunately, but we do have the tapas. But I guess the uh, the question here that hits me is. What got you thinking about wanting to go abroad, you know, wanting to move, wanting to explore the world? What was outside of Italy? I guess, how did that, you know, uh, come up for you? And then how do you think that worldview has shaped up things for you? Yeah, for sure. So um, I've always been quite international with my educational experience. So during my bachelor's degree, I did uh, an exchange program in Germany as well. And one thing I realized is that uh, in Italy, I was studying a lot, but I was not putting into practice that much what I was studying. So um, the European, let's call it German and English experience was way more tactical and practical. So I decided to move there for my master's degree. And also then uh, from a work perspective, Alejandro, you get naturally attracted by the UK because I always work either in finance or technology. 
and the UK market is way larger than the Italian one, right? I think in terms of like venture capital, you're about 10 years ahead in terms of like amount of capital raised and invested every year in the UK versus uh, Italy. Uh, and also in terms of finance, you know, most of the major investment banks are based in London. Usually they are Americans and they have a European branch like Jeffries, the one that they work for. So, um, yeah, Italy is a great market as well. We have a lot of clients there. But in terms of like starting a company and raising capital, uh, the UK is a much better place at the moment, particularly London. Also because uh, it gives you access to the American market way more. And most of our investors so far, we closed four rounds, three of them being institutional, and all of them were led by American investors. And for American investors, usually it's much easier and much more frequent and likely to invest in a UK-based LTV rather than an Italian company. So we started our team here. We have a, an office in Italy as well, relatively small. But yeah, I enjoy the life in the UK and Italy is pretty close as well. So you were alluding to this uh, earlier, you know, the... Um experience also of uh, venturing into the venture world, right? I mean, obviously, the the whole venture capital and startups is very different from what you were doing at Jefferies and from also the traditional, you know, backgrounds that we have where it's all about going into becoming a banker, a lawyer, or a doctor, you know? So venturing into VC, you know, it's a little bit, you know, especially, you know, in Europe now, obviously, the industry and the landscape, you know, has a shaping up. But, you know, it's still quite the shift, you know, for, 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 for anyone coming out of Italy or, or Spain. So I guess in your case, what caught your eye from the venture capital industry that you were like, hey, you know what, maybe it makes sense for me to give it a shot at this thing? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I guess, uh, look, it's true. I was working in banking and working on uh, later stage companies, right? Uh, usually companies with a lot of revenue, EBITDA and so forth. But I was lucky enough to cover the technology space. Um, so I was, let's say, closer to the technology trend and hence venture capital in comparison to someone that was covering industrial or utilities or healthcare, right? So I was covering names that sometimes were venture-baked as well. Um, and it became like a natural transition that they wanted to be more on the buy side. And then at that point, it was a decision between being uh, in the late stage private equity, growth equity, or venture capital. And I enjoyed more the early stage side, Alejandro, because at some point, like you, I wanted to start something of my own. So I thought that by um, you know entering the venture capital space, so seed, series A, I would be closer to the starting phase, um, initiating a company, hiring the first people, raising the capital. And then after two years, I learned a lot about that and decided to start my own company. But you're right. I mean, in a certain way, Europe is very different from the U.S. Most of the people working in venture capital they usually come from institutional background, meaning, uh, you know, banking, consulting, which is something that hopefully will change at some point, because I think the best investor in the venture capital space are former entrepreneurs. Um, and it's changing a bit, but it's nowhere close to the U.S., where most of the people that do VC, they usually have at least at the partner level previous uh, entrepreneurial experience. So to be honest, I realize now um, as an entrepreneur, how bad I was as a VC in terms of like, I was providing a lot of recommendation to our portfolio companies without knowing the daily struggle that entrepreneurs go through. So I definitely think that an experience as an entrepreneur makes you a much better investor. And that's the reason why 
I'm uh, investing a bit as an angel investor now because you're closer to the trend. Um, but also like the transition from banking, especially if you come from the technology space, both in investment banking and equity research to VC is relatively small. Now, as part of being on the other side of the table, you know, being an investor, which is different from where you are now, I guess the, uh, the, what, what, what kind of exposure and, and what did you learn when it comes to pattern recognition from companies that are worthy, from companies that maybe are not going to have that big of a shot at making it happen? Yeah, I think at the beginning, Alejandro is, uh, I mean, everyone speaks about that, but really the team is the most important thing, right? And having a team product fit, which means someone that, you know, has a previous experience in what he's doing as well. So for us, it was very important to start a company. When we started Ship Circle, we put together a strong team with people that had relevant experience, right? What we do at Ship Circle, and we haven't mentioned yet, we are the first provider of software for e-commerce brands, particularly on Shopify. We have 100,000 clients there, and we provide everything into one solution. So it's all in one software platform, some sort of like Microsoft of e-commerce, for brands operating on Shopify. And so for us, it was very important. Me coming from finance was good. I had an experience in e-commerce, but it was very important to surround myself by people with uh, specific expertise in certain areas. So my co-founder, Gian Maria, comes from Amazon and our CTO at the time, Stefano, was coming directly from Shopify on the development side. And that's very important at this stage, right? Most of the first round, seed round, when you don't have a product yet, is mostly based on the team. And then the other important point is always going to be uh, the total addressable market. And I teach uh, entrepreneurship at university as well, or better, how to raise capital. And that's usually, these are the two things that investors obsess. And the question that you always receive when you raise the first institutional, how, how big is the market? Um, um, is, is there are many competitors in there? Is it at least $1 billion? How much is it growing? What is your likelihood to capture a good percentage of that market? So these are the two most important uh, trends in terms of like, you know, raising a seed versus institution around or not team and uh, the size of the market for sure. So at what point does the um, idea of maybe switching sides and uh, building something of your own and obviously in this case, you know, what ended up being shop circle, but how does that process of incubation and, and thinking and then for you to say, hey, maybe it's time for me to go to the other side of the table now? Yeah, I guess like uh, at some point, you know, VC is a very good job, I think, but it's also a bit glamorized. So you learn a lot. But after two years that I was there, I was feeling, okay, I always see companies on the seed stage, but I never see the next step. So the learning curve is very steep, but then is also like taking a lot of time for you to know whether you're a good investor or not, right? Because sometimes it takes 10 years for a company to exit. And I wanted to do something a bit more practical. I wanted to build companies from scratch. I wanted to be um, more involved in the operation. Whereas as a VC, obviously you cover 20, 30 companies at the same time. So the level of your recommendation are always high level, but you never go in the nitty gritty details of building a company. As a founder, it's the opposite, right? You became an expert in one area, in our case, software for e-commerce brand, and then you master everything. You master operation, hiring, fundraising, um, HR, uh, development, product management, customer service, and a lot of that, which is something that I missed in 
venture capital, right? No matter how operational can a VC be, they will never replace the founder, right? The recommendation that they provide is always a bit high level. And then some of them, for instance, we have NFX and QD that are extremely helpful in terms of operation, but particularly in certain areas with certain people from their platform team. And so, yeah, at some point um, I was feeling like, you know, that's the right time. I was 27 years old at the time, which in Europe is considered to be very, very young. But I think that age is perfect, right? Because the trade-off, you're not losing much. If it doesn't go well, you can always go back to your work, in my case, equity research or venture capital, but also uh, you have way less commitment, right? You don't have family, you don't have huge bills. So I say, let's try now. The market was pretty hot at the time in 2021. We came together with my co-founder. It was not very difficult for me to convince him to leave Amazon because he was in a similar position as I was at the time. And we started. We started for three months just to explore the idea. Um, And then very quickly, we started fundraising. And in less than three weeks, we raised more than uh, $1.5 million from angel investors all over Europe. And so we decided to go full-time into the idea. And I think with hindsight, it was probably the best decision of my life. So just for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Shop Circle? How are you guys making money? Sure. So um, we operate uh, mostly on Shopify at the moment. Shopify is the largest D2C platform in the world. Alejandro is a $102 billion company. And the second largest competitor in the space of direct-to-consumer, so selling online directly to the consumer, is BigCommerce, which is approximately $100 billion uh, less, so 100 times smaller than Shopify. So Shopify is almost like a natural monopoly for direct-to-consumer. It's the equivalent of Amazon, but for direct-to-consumer brands. It's used by approximately 3 million merchants all over the world. But in my opinion, the real strength of Shopify is the partner ecosystem. So for every dollar that Shopify makes, their partners make seven times more. And by partners, I mean agencies, so people helping you to set up your stores, and apps, software. So you have an app store on Shopify of approximately 10,000 apps, of which five of them already reached the unicorn valuation. You might be familiar, obviously, with Clavio, then there are a bunch of other names, Postscript, Gorgeous, Attentive, uh, Recharge, and a few others. And then there are thousands of bootstrap developers, which are very good at doing from zero to one, but they struggle with the scale up, either because they lack the expertise or the resources. And that's when Shop Circle um, came along. So we either acquire these apps or we start them from scratch. And at the moment, we operate 40 solutions, so 40 different software in the space of delivery, inventory, payments, digital downloads. And we centralize everything under one brand. Right. The problem that e-commerce brands are facing at the moment, Alejandro, is that they used to have five apps 10 years ago. And now this number of apps that they're using went up 10 times. Right. So they're using 35, 40 products and they don't want to deal with 40 different points of contacts. And that's why Shop Circle exists. We centralize all the customer service, the onboarding experience, the partnership experience and the billing as well under one solution, which is Shop Circle. So we are. Uh, all-in-one software platform, which serve approximately now 100,000 clients all over the world. Um, And yeah, that's what ShopSurple stands for. It's practically a software provider uh, for e-commerce brand. We want to build an operating system, so similar to Microsoft, but just for e-commerce brands. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case, you were alluding to it earlier. You guys uh, went at it, and you were very successful You know, quite early already with fundraising. I know that uh, you guys have raised close to $140 million. Uh, and in this case, you know, how has it been the fundraising experience, you know, going through these different, you know, rounds that you guys have done? Yeah. So uh, obviously the market was very different uh, two years ago, Alejandro, than, than it is now, right? Uh, just the amount of capital raised in U.S. and Europe, I think, went down about three times um, in three years. Uh, on the back of 2021, with interest rates very low, um, it was much easier. There was much more capital flowing. So the first round were very smooth. I remember the first institutional round after the angel round that I mentioned before, we raised, we ended up raising um, a bit more than $7.5 million and we initially planned for $3 million. We closed the whole process in one month, uh, received something like six or seven term sheets for the lead. So the market was very hot at the time. Now, this time has changed, right? It doesn't exist uh, anymore that you receive a lot of term sheets just with one month of uh, fundraising. The funds take way more time uh, to assess the opportunity, but we still managed to, you know, um, over the next two years, to raise two additional rounds. Uh, we're very well capitalized at the moment and to increase sustainably the valuation. So we never stretch the valuation too much. Uh, all my friends that raise from, you know, Tiger Global or SoftBank, a very high valuation are struggling at the moment. For us, it was never the case. It's always been very rational um, and based on fundamentals because also because I come from a very traditional background of equity research where the valuation is very rigorous. Um, and so, yeah, it's been slightly more difficult on the other round, but the traction was there. So uh, once the revenue are there and also like our business is running at about 20% EBITDA margins at the moment, um, we had to speak with more investors, practically because you know many investors, especially last years, were active, but they were not actively investing. Right? They were saying that they were investing, but they were not. So the amount of interaction probably doubled in comparison to the first round. But at the end, 
we still managed to subscribe uh, both the third and the fourth equity rounds. And we'll probably do something later this year. But for us personally, it was not extremely difficult because the traction was there. Just the process got extended. So from one month, we went to, let's say, three months, um, mostly because a lot of investors takes more time to do due diligence. And also because now there is uh, more financial to due diligence, right? Like we went from zero to more than 20 million RRR. Uh, we have 20, 25% EBITDA margins. Obviously, there are all the software-specific metrics to assess. So it takes more time to assess an opportunity like this. And also, the nature of the investor changed a lot, right? Seed stage, usually the focus more on team and TAM, so total addressable market, as I mentioned before, whereas Series A, Series B, they tend to focus more on financial model, traction, uh, net dollar retention, um, customer acquisition over LTB, and all the other software-specific metrics. So the process is different. It's more analytical and more based on traction. So then, uh, obviously, you know, too, on the, I mean, you were, you were talking about the, the way to think about valuations and, and also the way that you guys have gone about scaling up the operation, too. The M&A has been a very important component. You guys have done about 14 acquisitions. So that seems like, you know, quite the activity eh, on the, on the M&A side, on the buy side. So how did you guys come up, you know, with the idea of using acquisitions as a way to really build up the infrastructure of the business uh, and the growth of the business? And then how have you guys gone about also the integration? Because as they say, most acquisitions fail. It's all on the integration. So talk to us about this. Yeah, that's that's correct. We did uh, more than 10 acquisitions over the last three years. Um, reason being, so we do both. We, on one hand, we start up from scratch and we are in a unique position to assess the needs of our clients because we sit on 100,000 interaction every year with our clients. And on the other hand, we also opportunistically look at um, different solutions to complete our tech stack. Obviously for us, uh, we often do acquisitions that are not uh, full M&A transaction with 50, 100 people involved, right? Certain times you can have this, the beauty of the app store and bootstrap apps. You can have sometimes, Alejandro, apps that have two, three million RRR, run by one or two people. So with crazy EBITDA margin, but obviously makes the integration much easier. Now, uh, in comparison to all the other serial acquirers, we took a different approach. And for instance, you might be familiar with Constellation Software, right? which is a Canadian company listed uh, for, and it's worth $80 billion. They only do acquisition. They've been doing acquisition in the software space for the last 30 years. Amazing um, share price performance over the last five, 10 years and very much acquisition-driven. Although they keep all the operations separate, or at least in terms of like running the standalone products, because they acquire from different verticals as well. For us, uh, the common point is that we acquire software within the same framework, right? In our case, it's Shopify. So all our apps, they operate in the same ecosystem and they serve the same clients as well. So let me give you an example. For instance, from a product and marketing perspective, if one of our merchants, let's say the big names, Patagonia, Espresso, Colgate, they utilize an app in the shipping space, then they might as well utilize another app from the supply chain space or inventory space that comes from ShopSoco, right? There are clear synergies uh, utilizing multiple apps from the same provider, the same way that you utilize Microsoft Word and Microsoft Excel from uh, the same provider. 
And so the integration, usually it's easier because the framework is the same, which is the Shopify one. Shopify is an amazing ecosystem for developers and it attracts the best developer in the world, but has also very strict um, sort of like framework and rules for the apps to be published. And so um, we are lucky enough now to have centralized team that look after all our products in terms of marketing, email automation, partnership, customer service. And once we acquire one product, then it's very easy to integrate because we have more than 100 people that are experts in these different areas. And then on the other hand, product and development is done on an up-level basis. So again, the thing, the reason why it's been relatively easier for us to integrate these products is because they're all part of the same ecosystem, which is the Shopify App Store, and they share a lot of common features. Then um, obviously there is a lot of work to do, but we've been focused on this from the very beginning. So I like to think that MA is a muscle. And if you train it from the very beginning, then it comes relatively easier. Although I still believe that we are a full product software company. So out of um, more than 150 people that we have with the team at the moment, um, the corporate development team is only like three or 4% of our total workforce and all the others are operators. So people that usually works on development, because we're a software company, product management, growth, and customer service. These four areas combined, they contribute to approximately 80, 85%. And once you have a, this, this strong backbone of people working on operation, then it's relatively easy to add additional products to our current tech stack. And at the moment, we are at approximately 41 solutions, all centralized under one brand. And again, this is a mix of acquisition and apps created from scratch. So obviously, you know, like to do the acquisitions, to receive investment, to get customers to onboard employees, vision is a really big one. When it comes to vision, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Luca, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Shop Circle is realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, so our goal has always been, and the vision as well, Alejandro, has always been the same from the very beginning. We wanted to create uh, the first operator of e-commerce tool globally. So it means um, that whatever your needs from an e-commerce brand's perspective, you would come to Shop Circle and we will be able to help. So literally helping brands with everything they need from a product technology perspective. And at the moment, that's what we're doing. Uh, we are present in approximately nine out of 26 categories on Shopify. So there is a long way to go. And then the plan is to expand to other platforms as well. For instance, in the D2C space, Shopify is by far the winner, right? As I mentioned it before, it's 100 times larger than the second biggest competitor, which is big commerce. But then, you know, there is a common trend where D2C brands, so they also have a presence in the marketplace, which in this case, especially for American clients that contribute to approximately 50% of our client base is Amazon, right? So on one hand, you want to have a presence in a marketplace because it's easier to be discovered and there is a lot of traffic on Amazon. On the other hand, you want to have a brand, a proprietary website where you own the relationship with the client and uh, where you increase the equity value of the brand. So at the moment, we have approximately 25% of our clients that also have a presence on Amazon. So next, we're also looking at the Amazon software space. But at the moment, we're extremely happy with Shopify, and we're doing 
uh, an excellent job there. Shopify as a platform is amazing. It keeps growing despite COVID is not there at extremely high growth rate. Um, it's growing at approximately 20% year on year. So again, the goal is to be the Microsoft of e-commerce, serving brands with everything they need from a product and technology perspective. Small, medium enterprise, but also large enterprise. Some of our clients, I mentioned them before, we had Patagonia, Nespresso, Colgate, um, and a few others. But we also have thousands of sole entrepreneurs, dropshippers, small, medium enterprise brands, and we're very happy to build for both. So we're talking about the um, the future here, but I want to talk about the past, and I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection, because you've been at it now with Shop Circle for a couple of years, but I want to bring you back in time. I want to put you into a time machine and bring you back in time to 2000, maybe 2021, you know, when you were thinking about doing something of your own. And let's say you're, you're able to have a chat with that younger Luca, and you're able to tell that younger Luca, you know, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Sure. So I think the first one is uh, try early, Alejandro. So I, I hear a lot of people, especially in Europe, where you know they need to have 10, 15 years of experience working in a consulting firm or in a bank in order to start their business. I think starting early is a big advantage, right? Because you have um, possibility to fail, and the perception of around failure also in Europe shifted a lot. So people appreciate uh, young founders trying. And for us, it was a, a huge advantage, right? We had very little to lose, no bills to pay, uh, not a lot of commitments. Uh, and it worked uh, the first time because we're building something very cool, uh, I like to think. But for other people, it's not like this and it's totally fine, right? You can go back to your job, you can uh, you know, try again. So I think starting early, and be persistent, right? You also have to get used to a certain number of rejection that naturally come. So venture capital as an asset class is very selective. So on average, also if you are a seed stage fund, uh, you invest in one out of maybe between 80 and 100 opportunities that you speak with. So for the founder, um, you know, you need to get used and comfortable with the idea that you're going to hear a lot of rejection not necessarily because your product is not good, but just because you're playing against the odds. So the only way to navigate and mitigate this is just to speak with as many funds as possible, especially at the very beginning where you don't have a lot of traction. And that's even more true with this um, market, right? I often hear Alejandro, people and founders that speak only with 10 funds, and then they say, okay, no one invested in us, and then they quit, right? Reality is that it's not enough. You need to Speak with as many funds as possible uh, because that's how the whole industry works and even the best companies go through it, especially at the seed stage um, and especially when um, you know the market is not great as it is at the moment. So uh, first of all, start early. And secondly, uh, be persistent and not be discouraged by rejection, but actually use them as an opportunity to prove them wrong over time. I love it. Luca, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, and not as much active as I would like to be on, on X or Twitter. So I think LinkedIn is the best way to do it, uh, Luca Cartechini. And otherwise, you know, if there is someone uh, interested uh, in Shop Circle overall, they can also reach out at info 
atshubcircle.co with any requests that you might have. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, Luca, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks a lot for having me, Alejandro, and thanks everyone for listening. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.